0: Uh, People are still talking about yesterday's bombshell hearing about former President Trump. Uh, We heard that at one time, Trump got so angry that he threw his plate at the wall and they got ketchup all over the place. And apparently, it's inspired a new product. Watch this. Say goodbye to messy cleanups. And hello to the Trump Magic Eraser, the best way to clean food off your wall, like a steak with ketchup or spaghetti with ketchup. Even chili cheese dogs with ketchup. The Trump Magic Eraser wipes it all away. And best of all, when you're done, you can flush it down the toilet like a classified document. Bye-bye. The Trump Magic Eraser. And he's getting sued by Mr. Clean.
1: Normally, we would never air anything related to this person on our show. But in this case, we're making an exception because of ketchup. This is just the most recent news in ketchup's illustrious history.
2: Definitely not its finest hour, although there have been scandals before, but we still love it here at Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm
1: Nicola Twilley. And I'm Cynthia Graber. And as an American, I have been eating ketchup probably nearly as long as I've been eating solid foods, whereas I used to think it was
2: an atrocity. One of America's worst ideas, a category in which there is strong competition, Nowadays, I realize I was completely wrong about ketchup being bad. But was I at least right about it being an American invention? The
1: answer to that actually involves ancient Rome. But how did ketchup eventually become almost a symbol of Americanness around the world? And of course, in honor of another
2: dastardly president, Ronald Reagan, and all he did to really screw America...
1: Is ketchup actually a vegetable? We will solve that conundrum once and for all. Gastropod is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network in partnership with Eater. This episode of Gastropod
2: is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card. One of the great pleasures in life is traveling, especially when there's great food waiting at your destination. When months of planning, preparation and exploration all culminate into one perfect bite, there is nothing better. For those who want to taste the world, go with the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express card, made for people who are in search of their next food adventure. If you travel, you know. Visit go.amex/youknowreserve to learn more. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos.
3: Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at Popsugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna.
4: Ketchup is a condiment. It's a very concentrated tomatoey sauce that goes well with meats and salty potatoes and is particularly loved by Americans, although it is definitely worldwide at this point. I was just in Ireland and we were in a seafood restaurant on the coast and every table had a bottle of Heinz ketchup on it.
2: For all you aliens from outer space who love gastropod, meet ketchup. It's a condiment beloved by earthlings that gets added to everything from pad thai to tater tots. And this is Amy Bentley, who you just heard on our Milk of Life episode, although breast milk might actually be the only thing that ketchup doesn't go with, to be honest. Maybe
1: also chocolate ice cream. But anyway, in addition to being a formula and ketchup expert, Amy is also a professor of food studies at NYU and author of the book Inventing Baby Food.
4: It's something like 93-95% of Americans have had ketchup in the last year. Uh, There is usually a bottle of ketchup in everyone's refrigerator. It's ubiquitous. It crosses class divides. It crosses regions. It crosses ethnicities.
1: I want to know who those 5% of Americans are who haven't had ketchup even once in the last year.
4: I'm actually
1: married to one of them. But yes, Jeff is weird. In the best possible way. Here's the even weirder thing. Ketchup was not always ketchup, not the way we
0: know it. Ketchup, when we think of it, is a tomato-based condiment, but for most of its history, it was not that. That's a pretty recent invention. Uh, For most of the time, it was a fermented fish sauce.
2: This is Ken Albala, professor of history at the University of the Pacific in Stockton,
1: California, and a widely published food historian. The word ketchup seems to originally come from a word in a few different languages in Asia that basically refer to fish sauce.
5: It's fascinating, isn't it? Catsyup is the name of the fish sauce. And catsyup and ketchup are very close together in terms of their sounds. And we think there is a strong connection.
2: This is Sally Granger. She's a Roman food historian. And yes, the relevance of ancient Rome will become clear very shortly. But the word ketchup doesn't come from Latin. Like Cynthia said, it comes from Asia, although no one is quite sure exactly where. The first recorded use in English calls it a, quote, high East India sauce. The second reference in English carefully differentiates it from soy sauce, which, quote, comes in tubs from Japan, and
1: declares that the
2: best ketchup comes from Tonkin in modern-day Vietnam.
1: And that ketchup was fish sauce. But so what are fish sauce's origins?
5: Well, we find, certainly in early Sumerian texts, we find references to what we believe is fish sauce. And, of course, we know fish sauce was being made in the Far East as well. Wherever you find an island culture with a high yield of tiny fish in their local waters, then some kind of fish sauce is going to be made. We
1: promise you haven't heard the end of ketchup. But to understand it, we need to take what seems like a detour to get to know its ancestor and distant relative.
2: Sally says it's basically impossible to track down the first ever fish sauce because anyone and everyone who lived in a hot country with access to small fish
5: would have made it. Well, it's in terms of preservation. If you are able to go with a small net to the beach and catch a few thousand anchovy and sardine and it's 35 degrees outside in the Mediterranean in the summer you either have to consume them straight away on the beach with a barbecue and a party or they start to decay so you have to salt them straight away and they're so small it's so time-consuming to eviscerate each one. Somehow, at
1: some point, the folks too lazy to pull out the insides of each tiny fish found out that there was a real benefit to leaving those guts there.
5: Well, inside each little fish, each little sardine or anchovy, there is a a little packet of viscera, the intestines of the fish, and inside that are enzymes. These are digestive enzymes, and ordinarily they would digest the food that the fish eat.
2: But once you've caught the fish and it's dead... The enzymes have to look around for something else to digest.
5: And they digest themselves, i.e.
1: the fish. And over time, that digestion breaks down the protein in the fish's muscles and creates a lovely, tasty, amber-coloured liquid. What a useful discovery.
2: This liquid is a little weird and sludgy
5: at this point,
1: but a spot of cheesecloth or a strainer will soon solve that.
5: And what fish sauce is, is that a clean, crystal clear, sanitised version of what is decayed, because it is really decay. Decayed fish.
1: Yum. And while probably everyone who lived on the shore in a hot climate might have discovered this sauce made from decayed fish, in Europe, the first to record the process were the
5: Greeks. We only actually understand that the Greeks were doing it because they write about it. And they are a fully literate society amongst the manufacturers of this kind of sauce. And it became what's called a very tasty seasoning.
1: Tasty for sure, but not ketchup as we know it. Nope, it would still take a while to become the gloopy red sauce I pour on my veggie burger. First, fish sauce spread from the Greeks to the Romans, and it exploded from there. The
2: ancient Greeks had built their entire cuisine around this tasty fish sauce, which they called garros. And they were considered real gourmets by neighboring civilizations. They were like the French of their day. So, when this upstart new Roman Empire gets going in what's now Italy, they want to eat aspirationally, which means eating like the ancient Greeks.
5: And the Romans take it on board, embraced it fully and really go for mass production. Yep, the Romans took fish sauce public.
1: They called it garum and it was so critical to Romans that soldiers took it with them everywhere they went and that was basically
5: almost everywhere in Europe
1: and North Africa and parts of the Middle
5: East. It arrived through the army and it spread amongst the native populations. Wherever you find a high concentration of Romanized people, you will always find plenty of fish sauce vessels.
2: Before the Romans arrived, people in northern Europe had made do with seas their grains and lentils
5: with salt Fish sauce was a revelation It's a magical ingredient It balances When uh, you add fish sauce Something, the umami Pushes that sweetness away And brings out the flavour of the other spices And the herbs, you get a An exquisite Balance in the mouth. Fish sauce
1: isn't just salty. It also has a lovely umami richness. There's a little bit of sweetness. It gives dishes a depth that they don't have without it. And if you just add a little, it doesn't dominate. It really is magic.
2: And it wasn't just something that could perk up the monotonous diet of the poor. Fish sauce was popular with all social classes.
1: No debauched
2: Roman banquet would be complete without
1: it. And because all the locals where the Roman armies showed up also quickly adopted fish sauce as their own, the Romans took advantage of that growing market. They made fish sauce at an industrial scale.
5: It's phenomenal, the scale of it. In southern Spain, along that coast from Cadiz to Cartagena, there are fish sauce factories every few miles. And they have huge capacity. Long, long rows of tanks which can produce thousands of gallons of fish sauce at any one time.
2: Reading about this proto-ketchup is one thing, but Sally wanted to
5: taste it. In these recipes, it states, basically, take your fish, mix it with salt, leave it to ferment. When it's ready, you put a wicker basket into the tank and the sauce flows into the basket and you scoop it out. So it seemed quite simple, a procedure, really. I bought about 50 kilos of fish, Quite a lot of fish and I have fish tanks, about 10 fish tanks and a large greenhouse in the bottom of my garden and a lot of salt. And then I watched the fish dissolve. Sally did a real scientific experiment.
1: She tried different fish. She tried different kinds of salt. She tried different amounts of salt or amounts of liquid. She varied the temperature and the fermentation time.
5: At the beginning of this process, there was a fear that my neighbors would complain, but they didn't. There was no bad smell at all. And the fish sauce I made was exceptionally high quality. And then she experimented in the kitchen. I've made lots of different dishes to experiment with fish sauce. And one of the best for this is a sweet omelette. This sweet omelette is kind
2: of a weird sounding dish. It's an ancient Roman recipe that is made with eggs, dessert wine, pears and honey, but also black pepper and cumin. And the result is
5: kind of like a custard, but also solid like a frittata. Possibly an acquired taste. So if you make this lovely dish with salt, it's okay. It works. You know, you bring out some some extra flavours. If you make it with fish sauce, it is just amazing. And if you make it with nothing, it's bland, despite all those wonderful ingredients. And I I make this dish and I offer it to children. Of course, they are the perfect experimenters because they have no preconceptions about what fish sauce is. But they always... Always choose the one with fish sauce until you tell them, and then they change their minds. Because you don't put fish in a dessert, and rightly so, you shouldn't, but it works. Sally's tried adding
1: her homemade fish sauce to more modern savoury dishes too, and she says you can try this at home with the store-bought variety.
5: Do a simple thing like a bolognese sauce. A bolognese sauce is great with a bit of anchovy essence in it. It works really well. So make it with anchovy essence, make it without and taste them separately and you will suddenly see what it does. Don't put too much in because too much fish sauce is really bad. You get too much fish and then you then it's not good. So you've got to be careful. Add it a spoon at a time.
2: I'm delighted to say that I'm ahead of the curve here. I usually add anchovies to all my
1: ragus and stews.
2: But cooking tips aside, how on earth does this ancient Roman fish sauce go on to become ketchup?
1: Well, first we have to wait more than a thousand years and then also go back to Asia. That's coming up after the break.
3: Embracing nature is more than just going for a walk now and then. It's reconnecting with the elements. It's harnessing the power of natural ingredients. It's putting the earth first. For over 50 years, Nature's Sunshine has been sharing the healing power of nature as they work towards a healthier planet. Their manufacturing facility is 100% powered by sunlight and they divert 95% of waste away from landfills. If you're looking for a sustainably made herbal supplement, That's NatureSunshine.com and use code NSP for 25% off your first order.
2: So the next stop on fish sauce's twisted path to becoming ketchup involves fish sauce disappearing. After all, these days when you think of European cuisine, you don't necessarily think of fish sauce. So how did it go from being
5: ubiquitous and essential to not? It's funny, it it probably didn't really fall out totally. It's just that it became hidden and it went back to being something that... Fishing communities did on a very small scale, and there wasn't a market for it, and nobody talked about it or wrote about it.
1: And the reason for that? Well, it pretty much had to do with the fall of the Roman Empire. Once the bureaucracy disappeared from most of the continent and the army retreated, locals just couldn't get their daily fish sauce anymore.
5: It required industrial management, it required the army to ship it, it required Roman tradesmen to invest in its production. And once it ceased to be readily available, people tried to make it themselves for quite a while. But I think over time, yes, they reverted to using salt. And it is not easy to understand. There are no voices. Nobody writes about this in detail such that we can really understand it.
2: Fortunately, the magic of fish sauce, the way it creates that balance of flavors and brings out the essence of whatever you're cooking... That never fell out of fashion in Asia.
6: So my mom told me, or some other uh, home cook in Vietnam told me, they said, yeah, fish sauce is going to wake up the flavor of whatever that it touch. So if you cook it with beef, you get the beef flavor. You cook with chicken, you get the chicken flavor.
1: Kung Pham is the founder of Red Boat Fish Sauce, and he and his family also just released a new fish sauce cookbook.
2: Sally told us there are some differences between the ancient Roman fish sauce production technique and traditional Asian fish sauces. The Biggest things are that Asian fish sauces typically use more salt, and they typically ferment the sauce for longer in tanks that are closed rather than open to
1: the air. This Asian fish sauce is actually the missing link between fish sauce and ketchup. So Kung grew up in Vietnam. As a kid and as a young adult, all he knew about fish sauce was that he really loved his mom's cooking, and she used fish sauce in her dishes. Then Kung and some of his siblings came to the U.S., and, of course, they tried
2: to cook the dishes his mother used to make.
6: The food didn't come out right. And I thought, like, because I'm not a good cook or I'm not following the recipes or whatever.
2: But then Kung went back to Vietnam for work, and while he was there, he bought a bottle of traditional fish sauce.
6: We picked up the fish sauce, we test the fish sauce, and boom, it's just like... Oh my gosh, why things are tasting so different here? Why is that so good?
1: It turns out that the fish sauce that's most readily available in the U.S. is not quite the same as the traditional ones he grew up with. So Kung ended up buying a fish sauce factory and making and importing it himself.
6: Making fish sauce is easy. Making fish sauce, traditional method, and keep it traditional, is require a lot of discipline, paying attention to details, that's the first thing to get the fish sauce right. It took me four years to get it, finally get to a batch that is acceptable. And that's when we we bring the first batch in, the very small batch, and people like it. And they said, oh, my gosh, you know, this is what we want.
2: Kong says that the first thing that makes his sauce different is he uses good anchovies. You need five pounds of these
1: local black anchovies to make one bottle of red boat fish sauce. The second thing that's different is that the fish are salted immediately when the fishermen catch them. They don't wait until they bring them back to shore, which is what a lot do for industrial sauce. If you wait, the little oily fish have already started to go bad.
6: And then we use wooden barrel, wooden barrel. Uh, When we loaded the fish in there, it's going to stay there for 12 months. And the reason 12 months is good, and that's the optimal time, when the fish is fully fermented, meaning the enzyme is, you know, working all its thing.
2: And the end result is, well, magical.
6: So the the salt hits you. And then the complexity of it is the, uh, the after test, right? If you leave it long enough, then you can see the sweetness come out on your throat.
2: Like Sally, Kung says that sweetness means that fish sauce is actually also great in desserts. And in his new book, he has lots of recipes for savory traditional dishes but also for such delights as fish sauce-infused Chex Mix and mochi cakes.
1: I use fish sauce frequently when I cook. A lot of us keep it around in our kitchen today. But my mom never had fish sauce in her pantry when I was growing up. These days, Asian fish sauce feels like a pretty new arrival. But
2: that's not actually true. Fish sauce just went away from Western kitchens for a little bit. So what happened was, after the fall of the Roman Empire, fish sauce staged its first disappearance from Europe— And then it made a comeback in the 1700s. By then, Asian fish sauces were being imported by European merchants who were trading with the Far East, and once again, people loved them. Especially the Brits.
1: And they called that fish sauce ketchup because that's something like what it was being called in some regions of Asia. Finally, we are back to ketchup, though still not the kind we know and love today. The Brits at the time weren't totally sure what to do with this fish
0: sauce called ketchup, but they quickly figured it out. They always think, well, this is a brown thing. So they use it kind of in the way that stock would pick up a dish. If you're making a ragu, for example, they would add a little bit of this ketchup in order to bring up out the taste.
2: Just like garum a thousand years before. But just as fish sauce is making everything taste better once again, disaster strikes. The Dutch, who have monopolized the ketchup trade, they get kicked out of their Asian trading hub.
0: When the trade starts to dry up when the Dutch stop um, exporting it, Europeans get these all confused, (laughs) and they they, they will use basically anything in a thin, dark, umami-rich fermented sauce. They'll put anything in it and call it ketchup.
2: The British were scrambling. Suddenly, the saucy deliciousness that had been making their boring roast meat more exciting was gone. So they tried to figure out how to make a knockoff version themselves.
0: And they kind of know that some ketchups have fish in them, so they put anchovies in. And they know that it's got sourness, so they use vinegar or tamarind sometimes. And they throw in spices. And so the sauces that are sort of the ancestors or the descendants, rather, of the direct ancestor of ketchup would be something like Worcestershire sauce. That's that's sort of their attempt to replicate what would have come in as ketchup. Um, And even HP sauce, you know, the the kind of brown sauce that is universal in Britain. That's closer to what ketchup would have been like in the past.
1: And the Brits didn't stop with a Worcestershire-like sauce. They went wild, making all sorts of ketchups out of almost everything you can imagine.
0: All the cookbooks from that that uh, middle of the 18th century use ketchup or will tell you how to make a substitute ketchup. And they're all anchovy, spices, salt, vinegar, sometimes mushrooms, sometimes oysters or mussels are used in it. So you'll find walnut ketchup, which is made of fermented green walnuts, really delicious stuff. There's dozens upon dozens of different types of ketchup. Um, That just becomes an all catch-all phrase for any Brown sauce
2: Some of these knockoffs sound pretty good, and I'm definitely down for a savory mushroom or green walnut sauce, but they do have a key flavor difference from the original ketchup, fish sauce, because the sour note is different.
0: The fascinating and ironic part about it is the ketchup in Asia is always means a fermented sauce. When it gets to Europe and especially Britain, um vinegar replaces that and if you add vinegar to anything it stops the fermentation so so modern ketchup from that point on and in fact, even the 18th century British ketchups, they're not fermented. They're aged, and that changes the flavor.
1: Still sounds tasty. I do often add vinegar to my dishes, but these are definitely not the same thing as fish sauce. But nonetheless, these knockoffs were super
2: popular, especially in England. And then obviously, because the U.S. was a British colony, early settlers were familiar with ketchup. It was a brown, spicy, umami condiment they all
1: loved, and they made their own versions in their new homeland. And eventually, someone somewhere decided You know what? Green walnuts are great, but what would be really awesome is tomatoes.
0: We don't know who first put tomatoes in, but it's almost certainly beginning of the 19th century. And that's when recipes start showing up in cookbooks. This makes sense.
1: Tomatoes are originally from the Americas, South and Central America in particular. And tomatoes have a really awesome umami note to them. They have really high levels of glutamate, and that's the key umami flavor.
2: The first known tomato ketchup recipe was published by James Meese, a well-known Philadelphia scientist, horticulturalist, and physician. In 1812, he wrote that, quote, "'Love apples make a fine ketchup.'"
1: We've already said that ketchups were super popular, but also tomatoes were really popular, so this combination of tomatoes and ketchup caught on really quickly. By 1829, a New Englander named Lydia Child, she was an anti-slavery and Native American and women's rights campaigner. She also happened to say that the best sort of ketchup was made from tomatoes.
2: Lydia was right about a lot of things, but these early tomato ketchups, they were also not anything like the stuff you're going to be putting on your burger and fries probably quite soon after listening to this episode.
0: The first ketchups would have been far more liquid um, and they're pourable and they're in a bottle and they're not really that shelf stable. And remember, there's no refrigeration, so they're probably very salty also. And it, it would be something that you'd have to use fairly quickly. So I think if you were to pour out something like that, You'd say this kind of reminds me of Worcestershire sauce <laughs> or something like that, because so it's a much much spicier profile, but not this the same sort of sweet sour balance that we get and not certainly not the thickness that we get in the modern ketchup.
1: And people at the time were not putting this early tomato ketchup on burger and fries either.
0: Well in the early 19th century they didn't have hamburgers and french fries. <laughs> That's one thing but they would definitely have been pouring it on their roast, yeah, and putting it in their soup and adding it to a pie recipe.
2: Savory pies, mind you. Americans were not quite as avant-garde as the ancient Romans with their fish sauce
1: sweet omelet. But Americans did create something new New and exciting and that was the thick goopy sweet ketchup we know and love today that story is coming up after the break
0: fox creative
1: this is advertiser content from 26.2 team milk and their new docu series
3: running sucks is running the worst yeah do you love it do you hate it i hate it so much i hate it so freaking much
6: Heinz ketchup. Think how good it's gonna taste when it finally gets there. Anticipation, Anticipation is making me wait. It's slow
2: good. It's keeping me wait. We made you wait, but it's finally time to meet the real American hero in our ketchup saga, Henry J. Heinz. He was the son of German immigrants, and by the age of 25, he'd founded a company with a friend, Clarence. They plan to get in on the hot new market for canned and
1: bottled foods. As we've talked about many times on Gastropod before, this technology was revolutionary. It really took off in America after the Civil War, and it's what made commercial ketchup possible. People started to buy ketchup in the store rather than make it at home.
2: At first, Heinz's new company didn't bottle ketchup. He actually started out with horseradish, followed by sauerkraut and pickles. Yeah,
0: Heinz did all sorts of things. They, they would bottle anything. They were the big baby food manufacturer. Actually, to start with, but any vegetable, any condiment, they did many, many different products. Not 57. In fact, that 57 was just a random number that he chose because he thought it was lucky. He thought <laughs> seven was lucky and his wife liked the number. So there's, there's never been 57 varieties. But they were mostly um, doing sauces of various kinds. Ketchup was was sort of a late comer.
1: When he finally turned to ketchup, Heinz made a bunch of different kinds based on a bunch of different recipes. One had cloves and pepper and cinnamon and allspice. Another had horseradish and mustard seed and would have been spicier. A third had salt and vinegar and a slippery elm mix, which apparently came from the fragrant, sticky inner bark of a type of elm tree.
2: Right away, Heinz ketchups were popular. Early on, he'd patented the groovy octagonal Shape bottle we still know and love, which helped his product stand out. But Heinz's real power play for global
1: domination was a health pitch.
0: What distinguished them ultimately was that they decided not to use sodium benzoate as a preservative.
1: We made a whole episode about what was going on in the early 1900s. At the time, food was often super adulterated and not safe. Sometimes even the preservatives that companies used to make food last longer also weren't so great. One that people were worried about was sodium benzoate. And the U.S. government,
2: in the form
1: of Harvey Washington Wiley
2: and his crew of guinea pigs, a.k.a. the Poison Squad, they were intent on cleaning up the American food supply and ridding it of these dodgy preservatives. Their crusade culminated in the Pure Food Act of 1906.
0: Heinz was very smart in that he saw the fear on the horizon And saw that the, you know, Pure Food Act was going to come out, and he jumped on that bandwagon immediately and pointed the finger at every other manufacturer and said, They're they're giving you sodium benzoate and you know that's bad for you, everyone. We don't actually know whether it is bad for you or not, but it's but but the perception that Heinz was purer and better for you was part of the whole sales pitch. And they pitched it. They hadn't really bothered to advertise
1: before, but right after the Pure Food Act passed, and in the next few years, they advertised their preservative free ketchup extensively all over the country, and the public bought it literally
2: heinz ketchup was more expensive the company made a big deal in the ads about paying more for quality tomatoes but using whole ripe tomatoes rather than the rejects from the canning industry and removing preservatives those weren't the only changes heinz made to his ingredients list
0: when you take out the preservatives you have to change a couple of things you have to add more things that will prevent bacterial action so more salt a lot more vinegar. So we think of ketchup as really being, it's a sour kind of flavor, but you have to balance that sourness with the sugar thereafter. It's when you up the vinegar in it that you have to up the sugar to balance that off. Otherwise, it would be ridiculously sour. And most importantly is you've got to concentrate it down. So the thickness of ketchup, I think, is really the, the result of having to change that formula, to be able to make it shelf-stable without the sodium benzoate.
1: All these things are key for the early preservative-free ketchup back in the days when not everyone had a refrigerator. Salt is a preservative. Vinegar is a preservative. Sugar is too. And when you take water out to make something more concentrated, that also helps keep it from spoiling.
2: And the result is a thick, gloopy, sweet, salty, tangy, long-lived sauce, a.k.a. ketchup. For the first time in its long and confusing history, ketchup was thick.
0: And, you know, the funny thing is that the bottling, they they made it a selling point. If you can think of, like, the, the the weakest part of the whole product was you had to stand there with the bottle, tapping it and shaking it for it to come out. That's that's the worst way to sell a whole lot of ketchup, right? <laughs> because you have to—you remember they, they had that song, Anticipation. Rich Heinz ketchup, the taste that's worth the wait. And you'd have to, you know, wait for the ketchup to come out. Those bottles are gone. <laughs> you know, it's now all plastic, squeezy bottles, which is lighter. And of course, you know, not having glass is great. But that was sort of funny that they put it in that bottle and the thickness was their selling point, even though it made people wait.
1: When I was a kid, before there were squeeze bottles, everyone thought the way to get the thick ketchup to come out of the narrow bottle bottle opening was to tap the number 57 embossed on the bottle with, say, your knife, without breaking the glass, of course.
0: Tapping the 57 was a was an urban myth. It didn't work. Um, some people would whack the bottom of the bottle. Some people would stick a chopstick in there to get it out. It was impossible.
1: Not completely impossible. It just came out on its own schedule. It took a while and usually some shaking and some banging on the bottom of the bottle, but we always got that ketchup out, sometimes a little more than we would bargained for but that was kind of okay because what we were eating had changed. Originally, ketchup had been an ingredient, but in the 1900s and onward, it came into its own as a condiment to match our new diet of hamburgers and french fries and more. Yeah,
0: it uh, ketchup goes on everything. <laughs> you know, they build it as a universal condiment and... Obviously, hamburgers, even hot dogs, even though I think that's a shame. (laughs) It's a thing to do to, to a hot dog. Nowadays, we don't use it as often as a cooking ingredient as they used to in the past. Now we just glob it on the plate and put it, you know, with anything.
2: All of this, the ads, the unique sugary, gloopy, tangy flavor profile, the rise of burgers and fries, all of this combined to make Heinz tomato ketchup into an unstoppable juggernaut.
0: When the look on the face is happy, the name on the bottle must be Heinz Ketchup, the red magic that puts more fun into everyday eating. Because
1: Everything no seemed perfect, but then like ketchup Hines. got caught up in a scandal. The year was 1981.
0: You know, I wish that I had Jessie's girl. I wish that I had Jessie's The Archbishop
4: of Canterbury called the wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer today the stuff of fairy tales.
6: And in spite of Scotland Yard's you most
1: The music was great, the news was full of things that, I'm still shocked, all happened the same year.
0: This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. You can't be serious, man. You cannot be serious! That ball was on the line! T-minus 10, 9, 8...
6: Seven, six,
0: five, four. We've gone for main engine start. We have. Come
2: on, baby. America's first day. Cynthia, can we just become a 1981 tribute show?
4: Those
1: were really the days. I am in. But the other big news of 1981 was America's ketchup scandal.
4: 1980, Ronald Reagan was elected as president, and part of his mandate was to slash the federal budget and return money to the states in the form of block grants that uh, they would then be able to spend as they wished. Of course, defense budget wasn't slashed, but almost every other department budget was slashed by as much as one-third, and this included the USDA, which was in charge of the National School Lunch Program. And government officials, in the matter of a few weeks, were told to reduce the budget by a third while still maintaining proper nutrition for student school lunch which is almost an impossibility, but they tried.
2: The challenge was that school lunches were legally required to have two servings of
1: fruit and vegetables. Fruit and vegetables were the most expensive part of the meal, so that's where they looked to cut. Folks at the USDA suggested that pickle relish could be counted as a vegetable, and also tomato concentrate. One tablespoon would equal one fruit and vegetable serving.
4: This is where the controversy ensues. They don't use the word ketchup. They use the word tomato concentrate. But because... They proposed that pickle relish, a relish, a condiment, be able to be counted as a vegetable. There was very, very quick inference that that tablespoon of tomato concentrate was ketchup or could be interpreted as ketchup. Thus, the Reagan administration was proposing that ketchup be counted as one of the two vegetables that students were required to be served in their school lunches. This caused a huge controversy and immediately picked up by Congress, by watchdog groups, by nonprofits, and pretty much everyone was horrified that the Reagan administration would be proposing that ketchup be counted as a vegetable.
2: The media had a field day with this story. The style of your administration is being called millionaires on parade. Do you feel that you are being sensed?
4: Symbolism
2: of Republican mink coats, limousines, $1,000 plate china at the White House when ghetto kids are being told they can eat ketchup as a vegetable. Even Hines couldn't get behind counting ketchup as a vegetable.
4: Well, John Hines, who was a Republican, who was a senator from Pennsylvania and the member of the Hines family, was pretty much up in arms. And he um, reported from the Senate floor, I know what ketchup is. Ketchup is not a vegetable. This is unacceptable.
1: And, of course, with all that pressure, the government had to react.
4: Well, there was so much bad press and uproar from all corners of the country that the Reagan administration, after about three weeks of this brouhaha, just uh, withdrew these uh, guidelines, the proposed guidelines. And so they were back to square one. They eventually went to some other kinds of cost-saving measures, something called offer versus serve. So they still had to serve five elements, but students only had to choose three of them. And that was seen as a way to save money.
2: Amazingly, astoundingly, unpredictably, many children declined their serving of mushy peas or boiled carrots, which meant that the USDA could, in fact, spend less on school lunch and Reagan could spend more on weaponry and tax breaks for the rich. And happily, ketchup remained a condiment, at least for the time being.
1: But this wasn't the end of the tomato condiment as a vegetable debate. In 1998, the USDA made salsa a vegetable. Of
4: course, this made the USDA officials very nervous to do this. And they were very defensive and were insistent that salsa was more like a salad. It's not like ketchup. It's still a condiment. But I think you can make an argument that, you know, some chopped salsa with tomatoes, onions peppers, you know, has some more nutritional value than, say, very, very concentrated ketchup.
2: Speaking of concentrate, these days tomato concentrate does now count as a vegetable.
4: Well, it does because it's used on pizza. And there is a a certain amount that needs to be on, say, a slice of pizza or in pasta, a pasta dish to count as a vegetable. But the pizza manufacturers who supply school lunches with extraordinary amounts of pizza are very keen to make sure that this is still counted as a vegetable. Uh, which keeps them in business. Because
1: remember, students have to be served a vegetable, even if it's in pizza sauce form. In fact, more than three quarters of all tomato consumption in the U.S. comes in the form of sauce and ketchup. That's apparently how Americans prefer their tomatoes.
2: And not just Americans these days. Ketchup has glooped its way into the hearts and mouths of people the world over.
0: And I think in much of the world, they think of it as a, an American condiment. But Every place has its own version of it. The the one that I really love is in the Philippines. They have ketchup made with bananas. And it looks like ketchup, and you, you taste it, and you think... This is ketchup, but there's something else very odd going on in it. It's delicious and sweeter. But, you know, as a condiment, it's everywhere, you know, in bottles and little packets. And, you know, anywhere you find so-called American food, hamburgers and french fries and, um, and fast food, ketchup has to be there.
1: But as ubiquitous as it is, one thing you might notice in the store is that while there are a lot of brands to choose from, you mostly get the same thing in every bottle. Where is my ketchup? My old Ketchup
6: some things you change and some things you don't where is my ketchup Heinz ketchup every time
0: so ketchup is the opposite of almost all products you see in the supermarket if you look at tomato sauces you'll find several hundred varieties one has peppers one is the you know it's the same company spinning out various versions of their same basic sauce Ketchup is exactly the one exception to the rule in marketing that you want to make as many products as you can with slight variations so that a customer will come in and say, oh, I like this one, and buy it. There's only one ketchup.
2: And that's because, actually, it's kind of perfect. Snobs may look down on it, but ketchup is a gastronomic marvel. In a way, it's what was missing in European cuisine.
0: There was a time when European food was... What I would call poly-savory, meaning that it was typical to mix sour and sweet and spicy and savory ingredients together.
1: That changed in Europe with the rise of French cuisine around the 1600s. The idea was that the food itself as a pure thing had to be the star. Roasts tasted like roasts, and sweets were sent to the back of the line for dessert. And there weren't a lot of spices.
0: So you'd want like a gravy that's based on the main ingredient, you know, stock made into a chicken sauce, or the beef, you know, concentrated added to beef. But it means that it, it tends to be very one note, I think. I think your your taste buds also get very bored with it very quickly um, because you're only getting this savory and a little salt and something else. You have to wait till the end of the meal to get your your sweetness and there's no sourness pronounced. And I think that European cuisine is kind of missing something fundamental about what makes our taste buds happy is the variety, is the going back and forth between having a savory note and a sweet note and a sour note and a spicy note and playing off of each other in that way makes your taste buds excited. And so I think ketchup provides in European cuisine or and by extension, you know, British and American cuisine, this very complex flavoring that would have been part of cuisine in Europe at least, going all the way back to ancient times.
2: Ketchup is the missing piece of the puzzle.
0: And I think ketchup kind of is the ideal condiment for that very reason, is, is that it's supplying what we have inadvertently lost in Western cooking, is that really complex jumble of flavors.
1: Thanks this episode to Ken Albala, Sally Granger, Amy Bentley, and Kung Pham. We have links to their books, articles, and fish sauce on our website, gastropod.com.
2: And of course, a huge thanks to our all-star producer, Claudia Guybe. Although, I am not happy with her for getting Jesse's Girl stuck in my head for the foreseeable future. Sorry about that. We'll be back in your feeds in
1: two weeks. And if you made it through the credits, you get the reward of a final bit of ketchup fun.
0: Here is your first limerick. It's a snack. A lost bet makes you snatch up. Though some frozen foods might be a match-up. Or as fast food surprise that can cool down hot fries. It's a popsicle tasting like... Ketchup? Yes, Yes, ketchup. ketchup. You can't decide between having a hot dog and having dessert. Don't bother. With French's new Frenchicle Ketchup Popsicle, you can have the worst of both worlds. (laughs) I don't know. Perfect for anyone nostalgic for that childhood treat in the winter of eating icicles with condiments.
1: <laughs> this episode of Gastropod is brought to you in part by the Delta SkyMiles Reserve American Express Card. You, dear listener, already know about the transformative power of food.